0: You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade Menezes is in the house if you've got a question about faith, family, or fellowship. That's a broad topic. We would love to talk to you. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at com, or you can uh, text your question. Text the letters EWTN to five five zero zero zero. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Matt Kubensky is your call screener, and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Live... You can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, is he is every Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes, how are you? I'm doing great, Jack, and I'm feeling great and detached. Yeah, I was going to say, don't try to take this (laughs) microphone away from me, because I'm not,
2: you'll have to pry it out of my cold, dead hand. (laughs) And I leave this afternoon for Birmingham, believe it or not, uh, for a meeting tomorrow about an upcoming series we'll be taping in July at the Shrine, so I'll be there at that meeting tomorrow, and then from there I'll be heading out to Mims, Florida, where all next week I'll be preaching a week-long parish mission at Holy Spirit Parish, so uh, we look forward to serving the parishioners there, and the good pastor in Mims. Take not a second tunic. That's right, that's right. Just you, 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 got, you do have to be somewhat prepared, though, okay? Yeah, well, I, I got it. But <laughs> you got to okay. make sure that the spare tire does have air in it, for yeah, example.
1: But I, was, but I was playing off the <laughs> detachment theme.
2: Oh, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> yes, let's talk about detachment. But before we do that, let's remember that last week we talked about the power of the tongue, huh? In regards to both positives and negatives. Uh, in preparation for what? For Lent, in these final week's countdown, as we approach Lent, I'm trying to give some ideas here to individuals of what we can do positively, things that we're going to do for Lent, and things negative that we're going to do for Lent, things that we're going to give up. For example, Father Wade, uh, is he going to give up coffee and ice cream? Probably, but he won't give up his favorite coffee ice cream, okay? (laughs) That's just one example. Wow. But philosophically, that's what we mean by positive and negatives, and I think Pope Francis has done a great job talking about doing positives for Lent, okay? Paying a sincere compliment, not one that's that's fictitious or one based on mere uh, flattery that's not authentic or sincere, no, but a sincere compliment. So we talked about that last week, Uh, positives and negatives, and also Um, the power of the tongue for positives or negatives in preparation for Lent. Well, this week I want to talk about detachment and what the Church means, Jack, about the virtue of detachment, right? So in each person's vocation to holiness, whether single, married, or a consecrated priest, brother or sister or or bishop, uh, detachment is that virtue which frees an individual from any inordinate attachment—an attachment that's out of order, in other words—to another person, place object, or state of mind. True detachment is not simply a lack of care, no, not at all, but rather it is a liberation from any excessive affection that would hinder one's love and worship of God by loving the person, place, thing, or state of mind too inordinately, as opposed to loving it ordinately, in an ordinate way, an ordered way. St. Thomas Aquinas defines detachment as loving persons, places, and things in the way that God intends us to love them. Amen to that. So, is a boss called to love his secretary? Yes, absolutely. But he's called to love his secretary in an ordinate way, in a way that's ordered, huh? And not be carrying on an affair with her, for example, with the wife and kids back at home. Every boss should love every employee in an appropriate way. Uh, In a life of asceticism, detachment regards the withholding of undue affections, that is, inordinate affections, for creatures for the sake of salvation, Excuse me for the sake of the creator whether whenever mortal sin is involved detachment is imperative for salvation detachment from creatures that are an obstacle to complete service of god is a normal condition for growth in holiness and the spiritual life asceticism of course is the diligent spiritual effort or exercise in the pursuit of virtue on a daily basis. The purpose is to grow in Christian perfection, and we can't forget that. And the term affections, as used in the spiritual life, refers to emotions, uh, passions, or feelings, and dispositions following from a response of love, desire, and delight to what is perceived as a good. Such responses of the heart, also include revulsion in contact with evil and rejection of whatever is disordered and tainted with evil. For example, one may have a preference for what is pleasant, such as overeating, but through the asceticism of a reasonable diet, one can come to delight more in healthy food than in disordered eating. Someone may prefer watching television to going to Mass on Sunday, but through growth and appreciating God's gifts, he may come to love the Eucharist more than trivial amusements like television. Training the affections, the passions, emotions, or feelings, or the heart, as we say poetically, to respond in an ordered way to true values is a basic part. Of growth and virtue." So to sum up, then, detachment is loving persons, places, and things the way that God intends us to love them. Hence, uh, we could say that detachment, in its authentic sense, Jack, protects us from establishing inordinate attachments to persons, places, or things. And let us notice, too, this is crucial I think, let us notice that the theological definition of detachment uh, does not negate the existence of love. In fact, detachment, per se, is precisely about loving things in an ordered way. In other words, self-indulgence and compulsive behaviors are not expressions of authentic human freedom, and we are self-deceived if we believe they are. So I want to invite our listeners today, Jack, to, to call us today and tell us what they're thinking about doing in the positive for Lent, Uh, or what they are thinking about doing in the negative for Lent, giving up something to maybe give their fellow listeners ideas. Are you thinking about going to daily Mass? That's a positive, in the affirmative, that is, philosophically speaking. Maybe you are thinking about giving up coffee, which can really be a trial Uh, For some people, myself included, (laughs) I'm not an all-day coffee drinker, but I do like my coffee in the morning, i got to admit. Uh, So whether in the positive or the negative, let's uh, share with one another what we're thinking about uh, doing for Lent. And in these last two and a half weeks leading up to it now, um, we can really aid our neighbor by sharing our own ideas with them. So I invite our our, uh, listeners to call in and do just that. You've inspired me, Father Wade. I'm
1: going to give up Father Wade's favorite coffee ice cream.
2: Hey, there you go. You know,
1: are you going to tell me next that you don't like coffee ice cream to begin with? You, you always go a step too far. You don't You don't know when to stop.
2: I got to tell you, I do love coffee. I do love ice cream. And I do love coffee ice cream. Um, but nobody ship me any, please. Please do not. Do not. I like my coffee with coffee. With coffee and my ice cream with ice cream. I don't necessarily need to mix those. There you go. Now, when we get back, I do want to just share a couple minutes, not even a couple minutes, of a few paragraphs of what St. Ignatius of Loyola teaches us about detachment. I think it's a beautiful thing, and I think it's important to share. Basically, and, and we can finish up when we come back, but God freely creates us so that we might know, love, and serve him in this life so as to be forever happy with him the next, right? We know that from the Baltimore Catechism. God's purpose in creating us is to draw forth from us a response of love and service here on earth right now while still living so that we may attain our goal of everlasting happiness with him in heaven. And St. Ignatius is going to tell us that all things in this world, that is, all created goods, are gifts of God, created for us to be the means by which we come to know him better, definitely, and love him more surely definitely, and serve him more faithfully definitely, so as to attain the beatific vision, eternal beatitude, and the vision of God Forever. And as a result of this truth from St. Ignatius, we ought to appreciate and use these gifts of God insofar as they help us toward our goal of loving service and union with him. But insofar as any created things hinder our progress toward this ultimate goal, we ought to let them go. And so, in everyday life, we should keep ourselves indifferent or undecided in the face of all created gifts, that is, goods, when we have an option toward them and we do not have the clarity of what would be a better choice. We ought not to be led merely by our natural likes and dislikes, even in matters such as health or sickness, wealth or poverty, between living in the East or living in the West, becoming an accountant or a lawyer, or any other such choice set before us. Rather, our only desire... Our only one choice should be that option which better leads us to the goal for which God has created us. And you're going to share all that with us in a minute. Yes,
1: (laughs) I certainly will. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. You know, our Lord has given different talents and proclivities to each of us. And I, I guess that we all have some sort of intellectual ability uh, on some level. But there are like some cats that are just, you know, wired like that way more than I am. And, uh, and I'm, I marvel at the, their writing and, and to hear them speak. And one of those is, uh, is Dr. John Bergsma. Uh, treasure to the church. He's got a new book out called Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, revealing the Jewish roots of Christianity. And um, he looks into Hebrew scripture and Jewish tradition and helps to explain how a simple Jewish peasant could go on to inspire a religion and a philosophy that still resonates 2,000 years later. I'm guessing being God helps. Um, go. But he demonstrates how the Dead Sea Scrolls, the world's greatest modern archaeological discovery, can shed light on the Church as a sacred society that offered hope, redemption, and salvation to its members, and ultimately these mystery uh, mysterious writings are like a time machine that can transport us back to the ancient world, deepen our appreciation of Scripture, and strengthen our understanding of the Christian faith. That is a lot of heavy lifting for one book, and it's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. One open line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. All right, Father Wade, here's the last chance you may
2: ever get to pretend to be a Jesuit. Go. There you go. Just to sum up St. Ignatius' teaching then, that in everyday life, we should keep ourselves really indifferent or even undecided in the face of all created gifts, that is goods, when we have an option toward them and we don't really have a clarity as to what would be the better choice, we ought not to be led merely by our natural likes and dislikes, even in matters such as health or sickness, he says, wealth or poverty, between living in the East or living in the West, becoming an accountant or a lawyer or any other such choice set before us. Rather, our only desire and our one choice should be that option which better leads us to the goal for which God created us. And so this is why, when the clarity is not there... If one does have a regular practice of the sacraments, St. Ignatius teaches, a regular practice of spiritual direction, a regular practice of the spiritual exercises, those moments of not having the clarity of of what to do will become less and less and less, because the virtue in the person's life will be more and more and more by these spiritual practices. That said, if we don't have the clarity, we need to look... On what would lead us more greater, more greatly, and closest to God as the answer. And I just think that's a great summation of when dealing with persons, places, and things, and ordinate versus inordinate attachments to them, uh, when looking at at should I do this or that? Is this thing for my betterment or my detriment? Will it lead to virtue in my life or vice? Uh, Is it a good in and of itself, or is it an evil in and of itself? Um, these are the things we need to be able to question and have clarity about to strengthen our spiritual life and to advance in the spiritual life.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. First stop today is Austin, Texas. Thomas is in the Republic of Texas, listening on the Amazon Echo. Thomas, you're on with Father Wade.
3: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, My question is about... um, original sin, and um, I know that can give us, or it can incline us to disordered attachments, and I'm wondering, St. Paul said in Romans, he talked about, you know, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I do, therefore it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so I'm just wondering, having to deal with, as you've talked about, you know, the darkened intellect, the weakened will, and the tendency to sin, see those effects, and presumably, and I read that that's not a part of God's, you know, original plan, and presumably it might be easier not to sin if we didn't have to deal with those things. So I know we can't be presumptuous, and God always gives us His grace, but I'm just wondering, on the Day of Judgment, will there be any, like, allowance for taking into account at all the fact that we had to deal with, like, the effects of the original sin, even though, since we're not Adam and Eve, we didn't necessarily do anything to deserve it?
2: Sure, and that's a great question, and the answer is yes. For example, uh, psychological dis- dis- uh, disturbances, um, a halacious upbringing where one doesn't know any better because of how they were raised, um, addictions—these uh, kinds of things can mitigate or at least um, lessen culpability, but it doesn't change the fact that one should always strive to the best of their ability— to pursue the good and the true and the beautiful because it is innate to human nature. Okay? So once the truth is made known to you, you wanna try to advance in that truth that truth that is geared towards the the good, the true, and the beautiful. So you're right about the enlightened intellect before the fall of our first parents and the strengthened will, two faculties of the soul, along with memory and imagination. Uh, And then after the fall of our first parents, which ushered in the original sin, the enlightened intellect became a darkened intellect, and the strengthened will became a weakened will, okay? So it's because of that reality, the darkened intellect and the weakened will, and sin in general... Uh, and a darkened intellect and weakened will in particular, that we have things like the fallen state in and of itself of human nature, that we have things like addictions, that we have things like fighting, that we have things like not speaking, Uh, the the addictions, um, uh, the sexual addictions, the drug addictions, the alcohol addictions, um, bosses who hate us, uh, we who hate our bosses, um, uh, divorces and separations and, 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 and so forth, but we do know that we're called to pursue the good and the true and the beautiful. And once this has been made known to a person, and it's innate to them to begin with, but it'll be made known to them with greater clarity as their life progresses, um, that, that they can strive to the best of their ability to pursue that degree to which God is calling them in a life of growth in that virtue and thus be able to merit. Okay, so... And God's grace is always, always, always a gratuitous gift. But remember, uh, with that gratuitous gift comes his own wantingness to guide us and aid us, uh, to work with him as an active cooperator in bringing oneself to a strengthened life of grace, which is always his gratuitous gift. So this is why St. Augustine says, I I believe it's number 1847 of the Catechism, the God who willed to create you without you, does not will to save you without you. And St. Catherine of Siena is kind of more blunt. She says, the God who made you without your cooperation does not wish to save you without your cooperation. So these are truths that, that, are, that should not make us fearful in a servile way, but rather fearful in a filial way. A filial fear, I've said before in the pastor on Open Line Tuesday, is the love of a child who does not want to disappoint the parent. Why? Precisely because he knows the parent loves him okay, where a servile fear is the fear of a subordinate uh, under a superior who's afraid of punishment, okay? It has to do with with fear of punishment, servile fear. But the, the filial fear has to do with the fear of disappointing, precisely because you know uh, the parent or the superior loves you. And, you, and so you you have that filial fear. It comes from the Latin "filius," which means son, or colloquially, it means son or daughter or child. So we want to have a childlike fear of God, not a servile fear of God. So you know, as long as you're doing what has been revealed to you through your faith and desire to grow therein, um, you you ask the question. Uh, At the beginning here, uh, as a man who seems to have great desire and great love for advancement in the spiritual life—I mean, I don't claim to be a priest with any special charisms or anything, but I'm just a simple preacher—but I I do sense that you have a great desire for the the good, the true, and the beautiful, and the desire to grow in that holiness, to become the best version of self. Remember that a big part of that is just beginning by being faithful where you are—what I call faithfulness to daily duty. Doing what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, and the way it's supposed to be done. Whether it's your prayer, your work, your recreation and leisure, whether it's to do with your family life, your friendship life, it doesn't matter. Your spiritual life, like trying to go to confession every four weeks, five weeks, every month to a month and a half, Uh, reception of the Eucharist each Sunday at Holy Mass, Uh, doing what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, and the way it's supposed to be done... Uh, again, whether prayer, work, recreation, spiritual life, family life, home life, those six major categories that we deal with daily, and striving for that perfection therein, and you have every reason to ha- to live and practice the three theological virtues of hope, uh, faith, and charity, uh, the charity of which is the greatest, because it, it, it continues in heaven, where uh, hope and faith cease in heaven, because the object of hope and faith uh, have has been achieved, God, n- namely God himself, so there won't be hope in heaven, there'll be no need for it. There'll be no faith in heaven, there'll be no need for it, as a virtue, that is. But love abides in heaven because God is love, 1 John 4 tells us. So, you know, God never demands more from us than what we're able to give, and this is why the Church, with her sacraments, the, the 40-plus truths in the Creed, which has 12 articles that comes to us from the Council of Nicaea, the lives of the saints, Lectio Divina, holy friendships, holy family life and marriages. These are the things that we're called to do and you have every reason to be joyful and happy uh, as you pursue and work out your salvation, uh, Thomas, as... as uh, Philippians 2.12 tells us when St. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And again, that's a, a filial fear, not a servile fear. Great great question. Thank you so much. Diane is in Weldon, Illinois. She
1: is listening today on Sirius XM Channel 130. Diane, you're on with Father Wade.
0: Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just have a question. My daughter's mother-in-law, who is a lovely woman who we love and respect, and she's a deeply Catholic, cradle Catholic, Teaches RCIA is a lector, you know, hands out communion. Deeply religious, told my daughter that Adam and Eve was a made-up story, and I don't. Is that? I mean, mm-hmm. I that's not my belief, but is this something that some Catholics think, or is it true? Or, I mean,
2: great. What's going great, on here? I was... Yeah, great question, Diane. Thank you so much uh, for your call from. Uh... Weldon, Illinois, we appreciate it very much. The only thing I can think of that she's probably referring to are the four senses of Scripture, and I talked about these last week, if I remember correctly. Uh, They begin at number 115 in the Universal Catechism, so there's two parent categories of Scripture. There's the literal interpretation, which simply means what it means, Uh, the words at face value, okay? Uh, The literal interpretation is the literal wording. That's the first parent category of two parent categories when doing scriptural exegesis, the, the literal... Interpretation. Then there's the spiritual interpretation. That's the second and last of the two parent categories, okay? And under the spiritual, we have three subsets. And what are they? They are the spiritual, under the spiritual sense, we have the allegorical sense, the moral sense, and the anagogical sense from the Greek word anagogy, meaning leading, it leads us to a truth, huh? Uh, which they all do in one sense. So the literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of Scripture themselves and discovered by exegesis, following the rules of sound interpretation. All other senses of sacred Scripture are based on the literal, okay? Now, the spiritual sense, number 117 tells us, thanks to the unity of God's plan, not all the texts of Scripture but also the realities and events about which it speaks can be signs in three senses, allegorical, moral, and anagogy. So the allegorical sense, we can acquire a more profound understanding of events. Well, we'll come back and finish this up, Diane, when we get back.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We're
1: talking to Diane in Weldon, Illinois, and uh, uh, we're talking a little bit about exegesis and analysis of Scripture. Father Wade, carry on.
2: Yeah, so the allegorical sense, the first of the three spiritual senses, Diane, the catechism states in 117, quote, we can acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in Christ. Thus, the crossing of the Red Sea is a sign or type of Christ's victory, and also a type or sign of Christian baptism, right? So when the Hebrew people escape their slavery from Egypt and they cross the Red Sea successfully, uh, it's it's a type or sign of baptism. Uh, the moral sense, number two, uh, the events reported in Scripture ought to lead us to act justly, morally. As St. Paul says, they were written for our instruction, quote-unquote. And then in regards to the anagogical sense, or the, the, from the Greek word anagogy, meaning leading, it's a leading truth, it leads you to the fullness of truth, the Catechism states again in 117, we can view realities and events in terms of their eternal significance— leading us toward our true homeland. Thus, the Church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem in heaven at the end of time, after the second coming of Christ. The Church is a a true, visible reality right now on earth, 2,000 years old currently, and, and yet she's a true leading reality of the new and heavenly Jerusalem as a community of persons living in communion with God, in heaven the, the 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 final beatitude that we await not that the church is heaven herself no heaven is heaven but the church in regards as she's an organized reality is leading us to the fulfillment of the new and heavenly jerusalem Okay, so then number 118 kind of sums it all up in regards to the the four senses of Scripture. Again, the literal and the spiritual, the literal meaning just that, the literal, but the spiritual being the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. Um, 118 says, a medieval couplet summarizes the significance of these four senses. Quote, the letter speaks of deeds, allegory to faith, the moral law of how to act, and anagogy, our leading destiny. So that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. So I think uh, if your mother-in-law is a, is a devoted, devout, teaching Catholic, like she teaches RCA, I'm almost positive that this is what she was referring to. That said, I didn't hear the conversation that she was in with your daughter. That said, she should have explained to your daughter what she meant by that and just not say that Adam and Eve were not real, real creatures, real human beings, because they well could have been. They well could have been. And so she should have qualified. This is why St. Thomas Aquinas teaches semper distingue, always distinguish. So you give the teaching of the church, but you do it very clearly and you make distinctions along the way. Great question, Diane. Thank you so much for calling. Call again sometime. Eight three three two eight eight. ewtn is our toll-free number. Eight three three
1: two eight eight three nine eight six. 3986 Next up is Kristen in New Orleans, Louisiana, listening on The Almighty's 690 Catholic Community Radio in New Orleans. Kristen, you're on with Father Wade.
0: Hey, thank you so much for taking my call. I wanted to um, quickly just share an idea for something to do with my kids for Lent. I have four daughters, and uh, possibly also get your feedback on how to practically maybe do this. But um, the idea is to live each week of Lent according to a different religious order's charism. So to have like maybe one week you know live like Franciscans, one week live like missionaries of charity, and you know kind of in our home life, however we maybe maybe can do that. And then if we can possibly to go and visit one of those orders during Lent. Are you wow, set,
1: are, I think that's a, yeah. That's, are you are you setting aside a week for itinerant missionary preaching?
0: <laughs> maybe
2: <laughs> there you go there you go that's that's our main charism as fathers of mercy and, and we also staff parishes in in rural and neglected areas um you know i think it's just a great plan that you have and you begin by researching what religious orders are near your home in a in a reasonable amount of time to drive and go visit and then contact those orders and ask to speak to preferably a member and not a a, a layperson who happens to maybe be an employee there, and ask for uh, their main brochure or look them up online if you know what town they're in, read about them, and just start making a categorical list of the three or four. I I would think you'd want at least four orders because Lent is four and a half to five weeks long. So at least four orders, if not five that you can research that are in your area, reasonably so, that you could go visit, especially if you want to go visit them, and make a pilgrimage each week to their chapel, and maybe plan to attend Mass in that chapel each week, once a week. Or or another paraliturgical service, like attend this, ask them if they're also hosting the Stations of the Cross in their religious order chapel at the mother house or the father house. These are different things you can do. It doesn't have to be the Mass, especially if the Mass time there each day doesn't fit into your family schedule. Ask them if there's a paraliturgical service going on. But uh, call and speak to a member and tell them what you just shared with me. Like, if you were to call me and I was to take your call, I would say, well, the Fathers of Mercy, we're itinerant preachers, we springboard from the catechism, uh, so I would recommend doing something catechetical uh, that week as a family maybe reading from a section of the Catechism, Uh, Maybe uh, doing something for the parish uh, on the night that the catechism classes meet. Maybe bake something to go share with the classes at the parish that night, uh, so that when the catechism classes are over, everybody can meet in the hall uh, to have some cookies and some refreshments. Something that you're doing to promote the catechesis, and then give a witness there when you're all gathered in the hall why you're doing that, why you wanted to have this little uh, celebratory gathering after catechism classes. Because uh, this week you're featuring the Fathers of Mercy and... And uh, they're itinerant preachers, and they springboard their their teaching from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And uh, you want to promote catechesis uh, or, or present something to a class. There's different things you can do, uh, but but I would begin by researching the orders in your area, find out what they're the, what they're about, what their main charism is, finding out when their daily mass is, and what their p- paraliturgical services are as well, like the Stations of the Cross. Or maybe go walk and pr- walk their grounds and pray the Rosary, walk their grounds and pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Uh, contact your pastor. Maybe maybe you could do all four or five events each week at your own parish. Carry out the religious orders charism event, or activity, I should say, at your parish. Let your pastor in on this five-week plan, four- or five-week plan that you're uh, drumming up with your kids. If I was a pastor and a parent came to me and says, hey, we want to do something all five weeks of Lent based on five different religious orders that we've researched, and here's what our plan that we'd like to do for the parish each week here on the parish grounds, I would think that would be fantastic. Uh, So there's a a multiplicity of ideas here, and I just think it's great... uh, Kristen, that you want to do that. You're in Louisiana in the New Orleans area, so uh, uh, Catholicism or Catholicity is not lacking there. Louisiana is a very, very Catholic state, a beautiful state. Uh, I'll be preaching at the men's conference there on April 30th uh, for the Diocese of Lafayette, looking forward to going there. Uh, so uh, you'll, you'll have all kinds of uh, religious orders in the area there in, in the greater New Orleans area, and even in New Orleans itself. So, so good luck with that. Thank you so much for your call.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Lewis is in Chicago, Illinois, listening on the EWTN app. Ooh, a great question here, Father Wade. Lewis, you're on with Father Wade.
3: Well, thank you. My question has to do with praying for our enemies. Uh, You know, when I was younger, I'm a little older now, but when I was younger, I joined the Militia of the Immaculata. You know, St. Maximilian Mm. Kolbe started that. And uh, he was, uh, you know, and he had a little prayer to a Blessed Mother in there. Every day you say it, I still do, uh, it includes praying for enemies of the Church. And, you know, our Lord himself taught us to do this, and He, by his own example, he did it on the cross. He prayed for his enemies. And, but you don't hear too much of that today in the Church, and I just was wondering, why, how does that happen? You know, is it just out of, you know, like, people are afraid to offend people or what? But you don't hear that intention too much anymore. And I'm just wondering why people don't pray for that more these days.
2: You know you're right, and I think it's a beautiful thing that that uh, you're you're bringing up, and and that needs to be talked about more. Praying for one's enemies, uh, not only personally, but praying for one's enemies of the church. Uh, and might I add that, uh, you know, I gave, the, I gave a men's retreat this past weekend for the Nashville Dominican Sisters Bethany House in Dixon, Tennessee. We had 32 guys there. One of the things I told them, we were talking about the state of the Church and, and how there's imbalance, too far left, too far right, and our, we're, we're called to be right in line with the chair of Peter and swerve neither left nor right to that chair, based on the constant continuity of what sacred Scripture, sacred tradition, the magisterium of Holy Mother Church have always taught. And then I ended by saying, look, gentlemen most of the Church's enemies (laughs) come from within, from the too far left factor or the too far right factor. You know, uh, yes, she has her enemies from without, too, outside the Church, don't get me wrong, but all I'm saying is that many of her enemies come from within, so it's important to pray for our our enemies. There's a great quote by Southern author Flannery O'Connor. She says, it seems to me that we have to um, uh, rejoice just as much as being a member of the Church just as much as we have to suffer from her." Now, by that quote, Flannery Flannery doesn't mean suffering from the Church as an institution. The Church as an institution is the bride of Christ. She cannot err in faith or morals. She's indefectively holy. What Flannery O'Connor meant by that was suffering from the Church, meaning her members who are off-kilter and who cause problems within the Church. So many of the enemies of the Church come from within, and from without. And so we want to pray for our enemies, and even personally, on a, on a personal level, we need to pray. L- look how look how Jesus said from the cross, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing, you know, and during the scourging. So we want to be able to uh, have that reality check that we do need to pray for our enemies because the the greatest love one can have for another in this life is to lay down their life for them, uh, even if they weren't your best friend, to be able to to... to have that heroic virtue to lay down your life for them. That's the greatest love you can have for another in this life while still living. And the, the paradox there is that it leads to the end of one's life. But the greatest love we can have for another, even in the next life, is to want to see that person in heaven. That's the greatest love we can have for the other in the next life, is to one day want to see them in heaven. And uh, that's our goal, and praying for one's enemies uh, is, a, is a big, big part of that. So thank you, uh, uh, Lewis, for bringing that to our attention, and especially, I think, as we approach Lent. Maybe that's a positive. We talked about the philosophical positives and the philosophical negatives that we can do for Lent, things you want to do... Uh, are the positive things, things you want to give up and, and not do, uh, and not take or eat or consume would be the negatives. Maybe one of the positive things we can do, Lewis, is take on a daily prayer for praying for one's enemies. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to recommend that our listeners go to uh, mili- uh, militia of the Immaculata.com. That's militia or militia of the Immaculata.com and go to their prayer link. Uh, I'm pulling it up now, in fact. Uh, resources and prayers where you can find uh, the prayer for one's enemies. So the means of their apostolate, by the way, is to pray and to do penance and to offer God the daily works and sufferings of life, to invoke the Immaculata, possibly every day, with this following ejaculation. O Mary, concede without sin, pray for us who have recourse to you, and for all who do not have recourse to you, especially the enemies of the Church and those recommended to you—is that Louis the prayer you were taught in the militia to to pray for your enemies?
3: For saying that, I appreciate
2: it. Yeah, y- yeah. So that's the one. Uh, yes, again, one. it's it's based on the the prayer of uh, the miraculous medal of Saint Catherine Laboure, uh, but it's it's added to O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to you, and for all who do not have recourse to you, especially the enemies of the church and those recommended to you. Great suggestion. Wonderful prayer to take on daily for Lent, just to add to one's repertoire. Thank you so much, Lewis, for a
1: great question. You know, Father Wade, we do a lot of fussing about uh, people that we feel have done us wrong. Mm. And whenever I hear that, one of the first things I think of, including when I hear it from myself, uh, quite frankly, is that one thing that's probably not going on is that they're probably not praying for that
2: person if they're... Right. complaining about them. Well, we can get so bent out of shape toward them and about them that we forget the need to pray for them. And I think that's a great point, you know. Uh, and if we just don't understand the situation about their meanness towards us, just pray a chaplet of divine mercy for that person. It only takes six or seven minutes to pray, and you end it with three times saying, Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. And th- in other words, you're, you're helping yourself to trust in Christ's Movement in and through all of this, you know you know remember, regarding anger, which we can have towards enemies, that's why I bring anger up, Jack, as with all emotions, anger is not wrong in and of itself right it's It's a passion, emotion or feeling, and the passion's emotions and feelings are neutral in and of themselves but as a, as a as a passion, emotion or feeling when it's unjust, it's just that it's it's unjust but but in and of itself. Anger is, is neutral. There's no moral component to how we feel, say, with joy or anger. You have to know what the end object is to make a moral j- judgment on that anger, to make a moral judgment on that joy. So, for example, are you angry because uh, you came home from work and found two thieves in your house, ransacking your house, one holding your wife and children at gunpoint, and the other one uh, going through you know, your desk drawers and everything else, you know, looking for money? Because if that's why you're angry, well, that's a just anger. There's no sin there. But if you're angry because uh, the store clerk was having a bad day and you found them very slothful and uh, uh, removed in in aiding you as the store clerk, like they should have been aiding you, and, and you get all bent out of shape, look, look. You have bad days. Other people have bad days, too. So again, you have to know what each passion's end is in order to make a moral judgment of it. So what gives the passions, emotions, and feelings a moral component is precisely what we do with them. In other words, do we perfect them with virtue or pervert them with vice? And if you hang on to your anger, if we allow anger to make our moral decisions for us, instead of perfecting this emotion with the virtue of meekness, which is its opposite virtue... We sin by not doing the morally right thing, that is, by letting anger make our decision for us instead, the unjust anger. So it, it can be good, anger can be good when we channel it to effect positive actions in our lives, uh, like an anger over an injustice, let's say, like, like for the unborns, you know, because of abortion's legality. Uh, it can lead us to advocate for changes in laws and policies for the good of the populace, and that's a good thing. This was the case with uh, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. Uh, she founded it precisely because of of the, the 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 tragedy of her son being lost to death by a drunk driver made her want to t- take that anger and transform it into something good, and so she founded MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. Uh, Candy Lightner was her name. She founded Mothers Against Drunk Driving after her daughter, excuse me, Carrie, was killed by a drunk driver who was a repeat offender, mind you, huh? So my point is this. Anger can hang on to our enemies in an unjust way when we need to not only pray for our enemies but also take the anger and transform it into something positive like she did. Still time for your phone calls. The
1: number is 833 ewtn It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833 288 3986 Be sure to check out EWTN News Nightly with Tracy Sable. Weeknights, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Um, got a question here from uh, Chad. And he says, Hi, Father Wade and Jack. I'm sorting through my parents' house right now full of duplicate, quadruplicate, and septuplicate items. These are not valuable things, but my dad has a hoarding disorder. He grew up poor with an abusive mother, but God blessed him with a very successful career in medicine. Any thoughts on how I can rationalize, from a religious standpoint, how all of this clutter is enslaving him? And my mom as an innocent bystander.
2: Yeah, great question. You know, um, something like this uh, will probably need professional help. Um, And if for some reason the family cannot seek the professional help because your dad won't be open to it, number one, uh, or number two, maybe the finances involved of hiring a therapist uh, or your dad won't go see a therapist, as I said, uh, maybe the best thing is to have a family meeting uh, in, in great, great charity towards your father, not to make fun of him about his hoarding, uh, disability I might add uh, as, as what the professionals say about that um, but in great love and great charity uh, have a family meeting where you don't mention other siblings but maybe maybe if you have other siblings you, you can come together with him uh, you can talk amongst yourselves whether or not you think it would be wise for your mom to be present or not or, and if she is present uh, you know m- mom can maybe offer her own ideas of how to approach it because she knows dad best uh, but it's got to be delicate. Like with any addiction, if, if a loved one was, was taking drugs, if a loved one was um, uh, prescription drugs or recreational drugs, if a, if a loved one was an alcoholic, um, you know, sometimes a family intervention is what really can serve as a wake-up call uh, for the loved one. But, you know, uh, hoarding can be uh, 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 symbolic of a lot of stuff going on inside. And you need to realize that from the get-go, from the beginning, uh, to see how it would be best to aid your dad. And before the family meeting or, or before seeing an actual therapist, maybe call yourself and get some ideas from a therapist. I'm by no means a clinician or a licensed therapist, uh, but maybe you could call and get just a consultation or, or in person go uh, see a therapist and get consultation on the best way to approach this. Also, I'm sure there's some online sources, I've never looked this up for hoarding, but I'm sure that um, there's some online sources that would be very good and balanced that would provide you and your family, your mom and siblings, if there are any, on the best way to approach this. So uh, there's some several channels there that you could look at, but just remember it's a delicate thing and it's usually indicative of more serious things going on inside. Uh, We've got another email here from Deborah, and she says, Hello,
1: 40 years ago, for a few short months, I attended a non-denominational church and was baptized there. It was my only church-slash-religious experience up to that point in my young life. I remember where the baptism took place, the specific church, and the method, full immersion in a backyard pool, but that's it. I think I was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but I can't remember for sure. Can I consider myself truly baptized?
2: Precisely because you have doubt. Uh, You're you're professing doubt by saying, I'm not sure. I think I was, but I'm not sure. In other words, the surety is missing. The certitude is missing, right? So a pastor at a parish, when the catechumen shares that fact with him like that— the pastor would say, well, then I think we should baptize you conditionally uh, before the Easter Vigil. Because the Easter Vigil is, is, is mostly reserved for those who know for a fact they've never been baptized, because there's a specific ritual you're following there for the Easter Vigil. But for those who have the uncertitude, or they're lacking certitude, or they're not sure they are usually baptized conditionally before the Easter Vigil, and then at the Easter Vigil, you will also go ahead and receive with the other catechumens who were baptized at the Easter Vigil, you will also receive with them confirmation and First Holy Communion. But you'd receive your baptism privately by yourself or with others who also need to be conditionally baptized, which is prefaced with the words, uh, if you are not already baptized or if you have not already been baptized— I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, with either the three-time pouring or the immersion. Now, the fact that you remember clearly the immersion is a good thing, but because you're lacking on the form, the formula of the wording in in the name of the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, that's reason enough to call the whole thing into doubt, and you would be baptized conditionally at the parish, probably before the Easter Vigil. Uh, then again, I, I know some pastors who don't do conditional bapti- baptisms. If the, un- if, the, if the uncertainty is there, they will just baptize them at the Easter vigil also. I, I've heard of that taking place. Uh, but but most will baptize conditionally when it's a case like yours. So hopefully that helps you out, you know, and, and set up a, an appointment with your local Catholic pastor. I presume you, you want to enter the Church, or you're looking to enter the Church. Um, he could also tell you about the RCA program, and what's involved with that, and how long it would take, and so forth. But share with him what you recall about your baptism, and then he could give you some good advice in that regard. Quickly,
1: we'll head to Charlie in Pensacola, Florida, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Charlie, you're on with Father Wade.
3: Uh, yes, sir. I saw the news this morning about a priest who's been baptizing using the incorrect formula, using we instead of I, and thousands of baptisms are invalid. How does the Church remedy that? And I mean, are those folks unbaptized? And what if they can't be found out?
2: Yeah, is that... th- this is this is a tragedy. This is an absolute tragedy, and, and this is why priests, uh, it is incumbent upon them to follow rubrically the proper matter and form of each sacrament. First of all, is God that particular, or why would God be that particular? Because the sacraments are serious business. They are instituted by Jesus Christ, the God-man himself. They're not lollipops we hand out at will. Each of the seven sacraments has proper matter and proper form, meaning formula, of what the wording is, okay? So with baptism, it's either immersion uh, or pouring, Uh, uh, and and, uh, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, And how will they remedy this? They will have a track record at the parish levels of everywhere that priest has been stationed of who was baptized by him. It'll be on the Church record. This is why the registries at the parishes are so important. And those people will rightly be notified that there's Good reason to believe they were not baptized properly. They will be invited to come back to be baptized properly. If they no longer live in the area, they will be given the guide to go to their nearest parish, and the first parish will vouch for this fact, that they need to be baptized. It will be done privately, uh, no need to go through a lot of ceremonial and circumstance, but they will be baptized with the proper formula. The, the sacraments are serious business. This is, this is not to be taken lightly. Uh, they were instituted by Jesus Christ, they are upheld by His bride, the Church, in regards to the dis- disciplinary realities of the matter and the form that each one calls for, uh, according to the disciplines of the Church. Uh, and, and this is why it's so important. Again, they're, they're, I don't, I'm not meaning to sound flippant, I'm being very sincere here, they're not lollipops that are handed out at will, right? The sacraments are serious business, so, so great question, and it's up to the Church, Uh, the bishop. It's up to the bishop, first and foremost, uh, to find out who exactly this priest is baptized at the different parishes he's been stationed at. Thank you so much for a great question.
1: If you'd like to learn more about the Fathers of Mercy, simply log on to
2: FathersOfMercy.com.
1: Father Wade, would you leave us with a blessing?
2: I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our
1: host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubenski, and social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless.